0: Latest episode of the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket podcasts. Firstly, thank you to those who got in touch with uh, their St. Helens memories. I picked out a couple for us to hear. Um, here's Chris Peregrine talking about Majid Khan's majestic 170 scored against Worcestershire in the county championship at St. Helens in 1975. He writes, On the surface, it seems like an unremarkable entry from the St. Helens archive a three-day match that ended in a tame draw in 1975. It did, though, leave an indelible impression on a 16-year-old brought up on the magical offerings of the Glamorgan captain, Majid Khan. His sumptuous first innings, unbeaten 170, was summed up by the incredulous reaction of veteran Worcestershire seamer Brian Brain, who saw a target Yorker from the pavilion end casually glided through the covers to the boundary boards. He hadn't seen many shots like that before. Majid may have been regarded in some quarters as a bit of an enigma and that suggestion could have gained credence during the fourth innings of the match when Glamorgan settled for a draw. On a number of occasions, Worcestershire skipper Norman Gifford theatrically appealed towards the pavilion for a more positive response to the run chase but his opposite number was nowhere to be seen. Maybe his absence with an eye infection was the reason for the go slow. Majid eventually appeared at eight to see things out with an unbeaten four. The dying embers of the match were certainly a talking point, but those who saw the three days know they had witnessed something special when Majid was definitely in the mood. And as well as um, watching great performances, the other thing that I think many cricket supporters love is uh, contact with their heroes. And um, Phil Bailey got in touch to let us know about an encounter he had with uh, one of the Glamorgan greats. Uh, Phil writes, Some years ago I was at St Helens for a day's cricket, as usual, as an autograph collector, we were collecting the sides. Later in the day, we got talking to Ivian Jones, who was uh, by the scoreboard at the end. Ivian realised we were collectors, told us to wait for a few minutes until he went to his car. He came back with a black and white photo print of him stumping Norman O'Neill, I think. He signed the photo for us and then blended back into the crowd. A true gent who recognised real cricket lovers and took time out to make our day. Well, those are just two memories, but all of this brings us to the final episode in tribute to St Helens, and our guide last week and this has been Richard Bentley. This week we hear about some of the famous names who've graced the ground, we discuss the number of steps to the pavilion, and Richard recites John Arlott's poem dedicated to St Helens, and we hear a few more stories about past Glamorgan players. I hope you enjoy the listen.
1: And I suppose the other thing that that has struck me going through all of these, Stephen, is the players' names that you come up with, not just all the Glamorgan names, but great players from other counties and other countries. Don Bradman mentioned in, in 1930 being excited by the tannoy system. He played there again in 1938. Weather was against him on that day. Play didn't start um, until nearly half past four on the first day. And and they had they had a brief glimpse of Bradman. But soon after breakfast on the second day, there were already long queues outside the St. Helens ground with thousands of men, women and children eager to see the don continue his innings. By the start of play, there were nigh on 25,000 people inside the ground. And by the time he reached his half century, another couple of thousand had squeezed their way in. And so uh, Len Hutton... Um, uh, 1947 got got 100 nearly 200 batting for Yorkshire, and that was after he'd readjusted his grip and his technique because he got it an injury in the war in, in a training accident in in one of a training camp, which left one arm slightly longer than the other, and and so he made that adjustment. There, there's stories about Keith Miller batting in 1948 and um, suggesting that he had the first ever reverse sweep. Jim Laker. Eh, in 1955 against Surrey. So that was the year before he took all 10 wickets in the test innings against Australia, 19 in the match. Ray Yellingworth, another spinner in 1960, getting a career best. It stayed his career best, 15 for 123, and being on the losing side because De Morgan beat Yorkshire, who were the current champions and who would go on to still be champions at the end of that season. And then we talked, mentioned Gary Sobers, Clive Lloyd, Richie Beno, um, it, it reads like a cricketing who's uh, who, um, and, and I think that's part of the. History.
0: I noticed it mentioned it's mentioned somewhere that, um, and I'm sure this applies to a number of, of county grounds. But all all five uh, wisdom cricketers of the of the last century played at St Helens. Uh, we've mentioned Bradman, you've mentioned yeah. Sobers, um, Jack Hobbs. Of course, oh
1: yeah, Hobbs, will have played Hobbs, at St. Helens. I can't remember the match now, yeah, but Hobbs did something significant because I remember writing about, about about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And then the more modern the, ones, which I'm sure many more people will recognise, um, Vivian Richards, of yeah, course, yeah. Uh, and uh, latterly Shane Warne.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. So saw Shane Warne playing in a, in a one day at St. Helens, and. Um, it's funny. As well as the memory of of him bowling, there's a wonderful memory of him sitting on the little wall outside the dressing room after play, with a mass of people wanting him to sign things and have photographs taken with it. And I, I'd seen him do it once before at Worcester, where, where he just got them to quietly line up, and he said, "I'll sign them all. I don't mind how long I stay. Just just be patient." And he just went one after the other, after the other, after the other. I, I must admit, I was in the queue. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Some incredible names, aren't they? I, I, yeah. I didn't include him in that list because I didn't see him play a first-class match. Um, okay, having Peterson was in that game as well, that one day.
0: We've mentioned a few uh, overseas players um, already. Yeah. Um, are there any other... Um... Overseas players that had significant performances at St. Helens uh, for
1: Glamorgan? Uh, overseas players for Glamorgan? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, um, well, Javid Meander got three centuries in three successive innings there. Um, uh, Viv Richards uh, got centuries at St. Helens on three tour visits, but that's, that's not to mention things they've done for 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 the Morgan obviously Um, I haven't mentioned Alan Jones have I because I I still think Alan Jones and several people have said it Alan Jones innings was it 1-6-1 against the West Indies in 1966 and that was an incredible West Indian pace attack Mm -hmm. people have said that's the best innings that he ever played some people People have said it's the best, one of the best innings they've ever seen.
0: Where else <laughs> but, would you like to take us now, Richard?
1: But, um, I I don't mind. Do you, do you want to talk briefly about the steps? Because you, 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 you guys,
0: yes, yeah. indeed, yeah. I think anybody who's ever read uh, one or two articles about uh, St. Helens will hear the steps mentioned. And yeah. I noticed just from my brief readings that various authors and reporters and uh, bloggists and whatever else you want to call them mm. have different figures for the number of steps so I wondered whether I wondered whether you could clarify that for us or whether it's something that remains un- unclarified
1: I mean I'm not sure that um, I, I can clarify it with an absolute number but I think I can clarify it in terms of pointing to um, two causes of confusion or well, one cause of confusion really the other the other one being that um um, things change with people's memories and they usually get bigger or more uh, with memory. But I think there's another reason for the, for the discrepancy, which I've come to. Um, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a, an article in Playfair Cricket Monthly in 1963, which is in the Homes of Cricket series, and that's, it's on St. Helens. It talks about great enthusiasm for the game in Swansea and all visitors to the ground say that the view of the bay from the grandstand, that's the delight of watching a game. And visiting sides thoroughly enjoy playing there, even if there are 70 steps from the pavilion to the field. Then um, Dickie Bird, who, who was known to occasionally grumble about things, says the record books say that there are more than 70 steps to the pavilion at Swansea. The last time I walked up them, I counted 89. It is, however, just possible that I may have been seen double by the time I got to the last dozen or so because my blood pressure had shot up. Um, no laughing matter for the batsman who, after making that long, long trek to the middle, gets a duck in the face with an immediate return journey all the way back. Not only is it the steepest climb in county cricket, it's also the longest walk because it's such a big ground. Should you stroll right round the boundary's edge, you will cover a of third of a mile. I suspect he means the grass next to the pitch as well and um, that he, he does say I always in, used to enjoy playing an umpire at St Helen's despite those damned steps michael Jonathan rice wrote a book about pavilions the pavilion book of pavilions and he says it uh, may be cricketer, the cricketers who are daunted by the infamous 67 steps from the plain surface, 67 now, to the dressing rooms. And then he says in brackets, which used to be 89 steps until the recent redevelopment. Uh, uh, David Shepherd, Goster um, Shepherd, and then the famous on pilot and says It invariably seemed to me that the most exhausting part of any match at Swansea was climbing all those steps back to the pavilion after running Jim Parks, Sussex. I'll always recall the occasion at Swansea. There are 77 steps from the pavilion down to the field. First ball I got at Nickle and Watkins and Hayden Davis caught it. This can never happen again, I thought. When we batted again, I couldn't get off the mark for half an hour. Then I got a single and I was so relieved at not getting a pair. I played down the wrong line to work for the next ball and went up those 76 steps again. And then, um, can't resist them um, this one by Dennis Compton, very self-effacing. Then in his uh, biography, De- Dennis said that another little nightmare took place in Swansea, It's a long way from the pooling to, to ground level at St. Dallin's. Dennis thought there were 84 steps. The ground was full and the crowd ecstatic. He was cheered all the way during the longer than usual walk to the wicket. Once there, he had to face the threat of J.C. Clay, greatest of all Welsh bowlers, but now an elderly gent, fast approaching 50. Dennis, being Dennis, realised that it w- would be proper to show Clay a measure of respect, no immediate force through the covers, he said. So thinking this, he took guard and shaped up to Clay's first delivery. It pitched well outside the stump, and Dennis performed, an exceedingly sedate, not to say respectful, forward defensive. Unfortunately for him, the ball spun prodigiously, evaded the bat, and found the middle stump. So within seconds, Dennis was walking back to the pavilion, up the 84 steps, with the crowd once more on its feet, cheering again for all it was worth. Bold JC Clay naught. He shook his head and laughed. Wasn't that arrogant of me? And with my my favourite step story. It's about John Barclay, Sussex Bowler, who later became president of MCC. And it goes back to 1970, where he was still a, a schoolboy, I think, in a rather prestigious public school. And um, he he just finished his first class match with them against the tourists, but was surprised, very surprised, to be included inside for, for the match at Swansea as an extra spinner, so his first championship match. At the fall of the eighth wicket, I jumped up from my seat like a jack-in-the-box and fought my way through a throng of noisy Welsh supporters. See you in a minute, and don't be long, one or two shouted as I began to descend the long flight of steps which would lead me onto the field of play. By now, with all of the Morgan fielders staring at me, my composure and routine for handling tension had completely gone out of the window. And I was in a blind panic. Middle and leg, please, I said to the umpire and carefully marked my guard. The fielders were clustered around tightly, hemming me in like predators going for the kill. It was a frightening baptism. As if things weren't bad enough, Ivan Jones, the wicket keeper, began to talk loudly in Welsh to the surrounding fielders, an unnerving tactic which completely put the wind up me, as was doubtless the intention. Malcolm Nash, left arm over the wicket, prepared to bowl. He hadn't seemed all that fast when I was watching earlier, but now the ordeal was terrifying. He ran in unathletically. Malcolm was irritated by that. He ran in unathletically and fizzed the first ball down the leg side harmlessly enough. I had at least survived one ball and felt reassured and marginally more confident. The second ball, though, was of fuller length and swung back at me late as I pushed forward. It struck me on the pan and was greeted by a huge appeal. The umpire, Hugo Yarnold, raised his finger (laughs) unsympathetically and my first championship innings was over. And he also points to that um, change in the configuration of the steps. But he gives different figures. He says, the walk up to the pavilion terrace from the pitch to the dressing room Became established as one of the longest on the county circuit with approximately 67 steps, which is a lot less than they're all saying. Yeah. They're all in it around 8 seven, somewhere between 74 and 80. And um, in the early 1980s, several alterations took place to the building complex. The dressing rooms were recited in a new eastern wing. That shortened the walk back up the steps to a mere 45. Well, I, I can remember trying it and I. I know I got more than 45 in because there are there are sort of two lots of steps still down, not that the steps are actually used, and another set which I wondered were used in older days. But um, we've got to get someone to go there and, and count them out. I can do, that. can do that. I'd love to know. Okay. I think we'll take Dickie Bird's sort of upper limit but I think Andrew's 67 is lower than uh, anybody's time. I
0: I was struck with John Barclay's description of the fielders (laughs) gathering around him. And I seem to recall John Arlott, the famous commentator, Mm. uh, who obviously visited uh, St Helens when he was coming to watch county cricket there, wrote Mm. a poem uh, about the ground. Which included something about the the Welsh cricketers ready to pounce, or I, I can't quite remember the, the line.
1: Yeah, if you've got that, yeah. Richard. Yeah, I, I have, I've, got, I've, I've got a big one of it, okay. which, we, which we got to put in on Fred's shed, and, and then they didn't play there again. So I've still got it here Cricket at Swansea, and in brackets, Glamorgan in the field, from the top of the hilltop pavilion. The sea is a cheat to the eye, where it secretly seeps into coastline or fades in the yellow grey sky. But the crease marks are sharp on the green as the axe's first taste of the tree, and keen is the Welshman's assault as the freshening fret from the sea. The ball is a withering weapon, fraught with a strong fingered spin, and the fieldsman, with fingers prehensile, are the arms of attack moving in. In the field of a new Cymric mission, without cricket, cruel as a cat, they pounce on the perilous snick as it breaks from the spin-harried bat. On this turf, the remembered of rugby, the Invincibles, came by their name and now, in the calm of the clubhouse, frown down from their old-fashioned frame. Their might has outlived their moustaches for photos fade faster than fame and this cricket rekindles the temper of their high trampling, scrummaging game. As intense as an ice-steaford ansom it burns down the day like a flame. Um, we, when, when we wanted to put that in the book, I had to try, try and um, get permission from the publisher. The publisher said they didn't, hold the rights. It was the Arlott family that held the rights to everything he'd written. Mm-hmm. So I managed to get in touch via email with um, John Arlott's son, who was um, living in France at the time. And and he gave us permission to use it. But 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 he actually sent a, a, an extra bit of an email saying how much his dad loved being at St. Helens and looked forward to meeting his friends there. He mentioned Dylan Thomas and Amos and... Uh, yeah, just how, how much how much fun he had with with that group of players and that he felt um, trusted by, by the Glamorgan setup. And I, I think he felt he you know it's one of the few people who could walk into the dressing room and things. Uh, it's interesting reading that poem because uh, he Arlott only wrote uh, two published poems uh, about cricket grounds. Um, well, one was about Worcester. Uh, New Road, which I think predates this one, the St. Helens one, because the New Road one is, is about New Road in 1938. And Arlott did like New Road as well, and it was his only experience of first-class cricket was fielding as 12th, or I think more accurately, 13th man for, for a, a brief spell on the outfield at, at at New Road. It's a very different sort, sort of poem, and um, when I researched that, I can't remember the detail exactly, but Arlott was at that time editing um, a, a book which was about poems, a, a cluster of poems from each county in Britain, nothing to do with cricket. Um, and uh, one of the poems, I think by Houseman, uh, set in Worcestershire, was pulled at the last minute, permission was pulled. And so Arlott wrote wrote a poem to fill, basically to fill the gap in in the book, that was the worst one. I think that the St Helen's one is very different. I think that that's written out of kind of love and affection for the for for, for the place. And I wonder, listening to it, whether I know it's probably far fetched. Whether it was one of those occasions when Dylan Thomas was in the in the stand or in the commentary box um, with him, because they they several times we know they they um, shared a drink or two. Um, while, while he was down there, Arlott used to carry bottles of claret around in his briefcase. Um, uh, but uh, you you can almost hear bits of Dylan Thomas in um, some of the lines of, of that poem. Uh, that's probably far fetched. Anyway, it's a lovely poem. And uh, one of the special things about um, uh, St Helens is is that it's um, got a poem written about it, and it's got a blue plaque because you know, there aren't many there aren't many sports grounds with blue plaques and uh yeah that was an exciting day Mark- malcolm wasn't in a good mood and didn't want to be in the photograph with the blue plaque but but we watched the photos being taken and i think it was in some of them in the end um, and
0: it, wh- where is the plaque and and what's it celebrating
1: it's round in is it Gorse Lane? Uh, i don't know what uh it'd be the, the entrance by the cricketers pub and it's on which the- is
0: no longer there of course is it not no. Oh my goodness. No.
1: <laughs> oh, well that's a bit I of think, a it's,
0: I think it's now student London. accommodation,
1: Richard. Oh
0: dear. As uh well, as almost every town is experiencing its yeah. transformation, but
1: I remember reading about an umpire, I can't remember who it was, He said said that he stayed there. He always stayed there if he was on and Helens because it was no distance to work. And it, it's it's kind of a joint acknowledgement of sporting Greatness and significance, significance, sporting significance, uh, rugby and cricket. But it, but it was put up and unveiled roughly at the time of the anniversary, 50th anniversary of the 66's Six world record. When we're thinking about um, what's happening there at the moment, and I hope that the people that were in the, the dignitaries that were in the photograph in the paper um, are, are now. Supporting St Helen's in in, in a bid to keep it open and active and significant because um, it was uh, the fact that it's got a blue plaque was more than just a photo opportunity. It's it's, it's telling us something uh, about what's happened and it's telling us something about what ought to happen.
0: In, yeah, in... I mean, as as someone who's obviously loved uh, watching cricket at the ground and and has spent some time researching the. The history of of cricket at the ground. Does it sadden you to know that there's no first class cricket there anymore and, and no prospect of it in the near future?
1: It, 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 it saddens me enormously, Stephen, and also I must admit, they, they makes me a, a bit angry. But I don't know whether I should be angry or not because not living locally and not being involved in things down there, I I just don't know enough about what people are trying or what's getting in the in in the way. And I'm I'm sure. John Williams and the Balconeers Committee and lots and lots of other people would be doing their level best to 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 sort things out. And I know it's not easy because you've got the is it the council owning the land and the rugby club having an involvement and Morgan having involvement and, and and greater demands on the on the stadium in Cardiff and 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 so on. Um but yeah, it does it it. It does sadden me. Um, my grandfather's favourite saying was, where, "Where there's a will, there's a way," and uh, so I think I'm being told that there's no way now forward for this as a cricket ground. So I have to wonder if that means there's no will, or or if it's just that there are other things making it impossible. But I I hope there's a will, and I would like to think there's a future for the. For the ground, not just as a museum. Um, I mean, there's the, there's a reference in Arlott's poems to all the glass cases in the in, in the big room, in the rug, rugby shirts and things, and and that sort of thing would be wonderful if there was a proper cricket museum like the like the one at Cardiff, which I think is an amazing um, achievement. I think it's so good that the club's got that, and good for children too. But it would be good to have that, but not to sort of preserve the ground just as a piece of history, but to to also preserve it as something that is useful for years and years and years. It was a it had a key function in in the town's sporting and social life, and, and it would be good if it if it kept on having life. Hearing, hearing about the cricketers pub doesn't fill me with hope. <laughs> but um, uh, what's it John says? uh no, no good uh, letting it be like the mumble's train and then grumbling when it's gone. I just wonder, last word, I just wonder if people would be having the same conversation about the future of St Helens and the Swansea and West Wales Cricket Festival if we were saying Cheltenham or Scarborough or Chelmsford and there was a suggestion that we, we just scrubbed the festival, people will be absolutely up in arms. It would all be over the cricketing press and angry letters to the times. And, and I know people are writing to newspapers and things. But um, perhaps the gap is too long since it was a very significant part of the town. Perhaps people, so, so many people, will have got used to it not being anything. If that makes sense. Anyway,
0: have we missed anything, Richard? Have we? Missed anything that you'd like to mention, or you, you've just skipped over?
1: No, I don't. I, 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 I don't think so. I, say, I always
0: feel worried that in such a, a discussion, whether we've mentioned, you know, everybody that that deserves no. a mention.
1: Well, um, I can answer that. We haven't.
0: <laughs> yeah. No.
1: True. I know we haven't.
0: I've, I. was thinking local boys like um or Tony Cotty um oh,
1: yeah. and Steve
0: Watkins. Uh, Simon Jones
1: I've I've got um, at the moment I've got just over a hundred of these sort of mini articles written for this book and there is one on um, Tony Cotty and um, uh, record stand he had with was it Otis Gibson okay yeah Cotty in command Um, career best figures with bat and ball record breaking stand uh, so, yeah, he was um, playing on the outfield with his father in a T-interval in a match in 1976, and he was 10. Um, Ten summers later, 1986, having progressed successfully through the academy system, he made his first-class debut against Oxford University at the Parks. First of four first-class appearances that season. That was about the time he was giving up football. And then a further 10 years after that, August 96, having been captain 92, and now an experienced and regular member of the first team squad and the side's vice captain, he was again playing at St Helens against a strong Leicestershire side that would go on to win the championship with 10 wins and a single defeat. Um, and he got into Glamorgan's record books as a senior partner in a record stand with Otis Gibson. And um, Leicester got 536. And uh, when Gibson went out to join Cottey, Glamorgan had, i have rather unkindly put, stumbled to 127 for six. Um, and they added 211, a new Glamorgan record for the seventh wicket. Uh, Gibson got 97. And Cotty got 203, and then he got his best-ever bowling 4 for 49 in the same game. Okay, 1989 against Northamptonshire. Watkin works wonders. Um, Devastating burst by the Morgan pace bowler changes course of match. Because I'm now going to call this... um, um, Saint Helens heroes and headlines. So I, I've done a, I've made up a headline and a byline for each for each game. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, um, uh, last day, visitors needed 304 to win. Uh, challenging declaration, taking the field just before lunch on the last day. Morris threw the ball to Steve Watkins, what they thought would be a short opening burst, before the skipper turned to, to a spin attack. But incredibly, in a devastating burst of just 14 balls, Watkin dismissed England's Wayne Larkins, Rob Bailey and David Capel, together with middle-order batsman Duncan Wilde, and all without conceding a run. With his left-arm opening partner, Simon Dennis, also snapping up Alan Lamb, the visitors were reeling with a Swansea scoreboard showing six runs for five wickets. And they also had a man injured, so they were effectively six for six. Watkins' six scalps at St. Helens were part of an outstanding total of 92 wickets in 1989, a season that also saw him win his county cap and be selected for England's A Tour to East Africa and Zimbabwe. Lawrence Williams surprises Australians. Local pace bowler rips into tourists' batting lineup. Great excitement, the spectators crowded into St. Helens on a late May Saturday for the start of the eagerly anticipated match against the 72 Australian tourists. The weather was fine, though the forecast was less promising. The Glamorgan faithful were already reliving the legendary successes excesses of 1964 and 1968, and at the same time dreaming of making it a hat-trick of victories against the visitors. Could it happen again? The 26 Australians, led by Ian Chappell, were a strong and competitive group. With the first Ashes test at Old Trafford only a little over a week away, there was competition for places in the test side. They needed some good last-minute practice out in the middle. Too much time had already been lost to bad weather. Although neither batsmen nor bowlers had settled properly and shown their best form, this young Australian side would be no pushover. They were certainly not in Swansea for the sea air and singing. They were hungry for competitive cricket. Tony Lewis won the toss and asked the visitors to bat. Malcolm Nash and Lawrence Williams opened the bowling with John Shepherd, Peter Walker and Roger Davis poised to take over. Graham Watson and Keith Stackpole opened the batting. Soon, Australian wickets were falling in the face of the Morgans, lively opening attack. Stackpole fell to Lawrence Williams, caught by Roy Fredericks. Then Nash snapped up a catch to dismiss skipper Ian Chapel again off the bowling of Williams, and again for a single-figure score. Excitement in the crowd was mounting, as, one in, as was unease in the away dressing room. Almost immediately, things worsened for the visitors, with a careless run-out of Paul Sheehan for a duck. The visitors at 37 for three were in disarray. Before long, with wickets falling to Shepherd and Walker, they'd subsided to a very shaky 91 for five. So far, it has been very much Gamorgan's day and Lawrence Williams' day too, finishing with figures of five thirty-one of fourteen point five tight overs. Seven of them maidens, and with the notable scalps of Stackpole, Ian Chapel, Walters, Marsh, and Lily. And it was an outstanding performance. It was an outstanding performance, and who knows, Lawrence Williams may have contributed towards another major upset for touring Australian side. Had not Morgan's fragile batting, and the Swansea rain intervened because it, it just petered out in the end. Of mm. The match, um, and then I finished it by saying, uh, although not in a match-winning cause, Lawrence Williams' heroic performance against the tourists was one that he and those privileged to see it would never forget. Malcolm Nash was a massive fan of of Lawrence Williams. He talked about him a lot, and. Um, um, the fact that he'd come into the side really at the eleventh hour, when when it was clear that Jeff Jones wasn't going to be able to do much, uh, and, and had played in virtually every game in, in that championship-winning year when they only used thirteen players, um, and to to come out of club cricket and, and take that load on, and and to do it really well is is incredible. I think he and Malcolm only missed a match each. And that was because um, uh, they upset Wolf Wooler and he dropped them. They, um, they roomed together in, in Cardiff and one day had overslept. Malcolm and Lawrence confirmed it when I chatted to him after one of the balcony. Both both say it was nothing to do with, with drink. They'd just been practising. They'd had a nice meal and, and they just slept and slept. Anyway, um, speedy caudal um, went round to knock them up the next morning, chucking stones at the bedroom window. And they had about half an hour before the match started to, to get, get into the ground. And um, decided to um, try and just sneak in, but stupidly take a, took a route that took them past Will Woolers office caravan porter captain and um they were spied and um he suggested that they perhaps had been popped up the night before and, and they said no and um um i think Malcolm was pro- was was pro- probably quite rude to um well trying to tell him that it was really nothing to do with him that he was only the secretary massive tactical error <laughs> and um some, something about his job was to stick stamps on on the looks um and will said he he would drop them for a game and mark um said you can't you don't have that power and will said have a look at the team sheet and um i, I think one of them missed the next match and the other one the match after one of them missed the match at um, in North Common Bay um, uh, and um, yeah but he he um, he said well, it was so good bo- opening a bowl with Honours Williams at the other end mm. I, I chatted to Lawrence a little bit after this um, dinner I mean you're, you're always very wary of bothering people for autographs and Things when they were social occasions, he was sitting with his wife, but I had my organ's who's who, and I wanted him to sign his picture in it. And he was so charming, so self effacing, and he seemed almost embarrassed that I was asking for his autograph. And um, yeah, lovely guy. I know that every ground will have a share of records perhaps some world records perhaps not but national records or club records of personal best. but it's the scale of st helen's that's that's astonishing the number of people who have got a personal best or some massive achievement you know Ma- malcolm going out to to the bat and turning the game round with a very quick century things like that it's it's it, it's the number of it got a bit like that um wonderful sketch in one of the Blackadder series where Dr Johnson is doing his dictionary and every time he thinks he's finished uh, Blackadder mischievously comes up with a with another word that he hasn't got in it and he has to add it. And so when, when I'm doing the last bit of it, one of the articles, some reference is made and I look it up and I see something else that I haven't got. And that's why it's got out of hand and I haven't got self-discipline to to pare it down, which is which is what I'm trying to do at the moment. I just took it to France and sat there with a red pen to cross bits out. No, I don't want. No, I don't want to lose that. But oh no, I don't want to lose that. But oh, can't not mention him. And and, so that's I and your
0: hopes, and expectations, Richard, are that it'll be published in what sort of format? I mean, is there yeah. any chance that it could make a book?
1: I I'd, I'd like to. I'd like it to be a book. And um, as I, as I mentioned, I I, I did think, oh, it would be a Fitting fiftieth anniversary for the for the um, and it's still not too late to do that. Uh, and if the, the balconers finds that there is no more first class cricket, it's one the more reason for, for doing it as a kind of tribute to that that hundred years of wonderful, wonderful memories. But yeah, I started going through it, making a list of things to talk to you about. I thought, God, oh, we'd we'll, we we'll be here all night, so I, I cut it down. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, it's been lovely listening to you, Richard, and thank you for for leading us through some, you know, lovely memories. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to the podcast will be able to have those same experiences listening to you rec- recall those stories as you had as a young boy um, yeah. sitting on that thank pitch for the very first time and feeling with all your senses what it's like to to fall in love with the game of cricket. So yeah. thank you ever so much. Thanks.
1: I think that's the key reason for me for what, for say, reasons for hoping it stays open is that there are other children that will have that same excite, excitement and experience yeah and and and, and a, a lifetime's joy out of cricket as a result of it. Indeed. Yeah. Thanks, Stephen.
0: Many thanks for Richard for being such an amenable guest and for gathering together all this wonderful research about St Helens. Let's hope it gets to see the light of day in what would be a fantastic book about the grounds cricketing history. Well, that's all for this week. In the next episode, we head north to Colwyn Bay and hear the story about how that club, along with cricket in that part of the world, developed over the past 150 years or so in the company of authors of a book about the subject, David Parry, and the museum's own Andrew Hignell. So we look forward to seeing you again when we'll be hearing some more stories about the great game of cricket from the great country of Wales. Bye for now, I of story you have any. Matrausekasti e MWC Pod nineteen twenty one at gmail dot com. Nay Auchintidalein Facebook Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast. Ne Intidalen Twitter at Welsh Cricket Pod. Do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If so, please contact email MWC Pod nineteen twenty-one at gmail dot com or go to our Facebook page Museum of Welsh Cricket
1: Podcast or our Twitter at Welsh Triggered Pod.